0: Welcome back to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode three, One Does Not Simply Leave the Beer Barrel Behind. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkien Extended Universe ahead. Uh, With that said, take it away.
1: All right. So in this chapter, which is chapter three, um, Gandalf leaves after telling Frodo that he needs to get ready to leave the Shire right quick and then does not come back at the appointed time. Uh, So Frodo ends up setting out on his own, or at least Sans Wizard, in the company of Sam and Pippin as they attempt to leave the Shire. On the way, they encounter some really beautiful scenery as well as some less beautiful, ominous cloaked figures. And then they run into the elves who are kind of jerks. What do y'all think about this chapter or what stood out to you?
2: I did think that this was a much more beautifully written chapter than I remember anything in this book being. Um, Like some of the descriptions of the surroundings that they have, and even the description of the geography that they're going through and how closely it aligns with the maps that are in the books. Uh, I thought that was really well done. And I was kind of like, oh, hello, Tolkien, beautiful writer.
1: That was something I also commented on. And I was kind of surprised by hey, Tolkien actually writes words good sometimes. <laughs> I just didn't really remember enjoying the prose for its own sake. Um but I did. There were multiple points where I was like, "Oh, I really just like this prose." It's good. It was uh, like the whole the whole chapter was very Jack Kerouac.
0: Um from their uh like they they're camping out, like under a tree and a fox visits them <laughs> to uh like talking about um just talking about like how far they had to go sorry. I don't know what about that is Jack Kerouac-y. I think I'm mostly talking about when they meet up with the elves and, um, and they hang <laughs> is out it there
2: Jack and... because the road.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, with a capital R. <laughs> yes. Jack, Jack Kerouac.
0: <laughs> the hobbit set out. I mean, there's, yeah, this is, I mean, it's, it, it it's, uh, it's, very, it's very beat poetry in the sense that there's not a lot that happens, but there's a lot of suggestions of things that might happen, <laughs> or, or, or could happen.
2: Yeah, there's also a lot of like straight-up poetry. Um, I feel like he was in a mood when he wrote this chapter, and he was in a poetic mood, and he was like, I'm gonna write some poems slash songs, and then I'm gonna write a chapter around them that's really poetic
1: the one thing about the poems songs was it's really hard to get a feel for what they were or what he was imagining they were going to sound like based just on the lyrics. He doesn't really describe the music aspect of it at all. And I think that's very Tolkien to be into the words a whole lot and not really into necessarily the other parts of what makes a song. But I would have loved to hear what he actually imagined them sounding like as songs, you know? Like, if I could sit him down and be like, now sing this. Like, tell me what you were imagining when you wrote this.
2: Wanda, isn't one of isn't The Road Goes Ever on and on, isn't that the one that you said was in the movie?
0: Yeah, and the one that starts um, Home is Behind the World Ahead is also in the movie. It's, uh, but it's in Return of the King. It's when Pippin is singing to Denethor.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. Which is really funny because it's not written... Like, in the movie, it's a lament, right? It's a sad, slow, sort of mournful song. And in the book, it's a walking song. It's like... Oh, I put this in my notes, but it's basically like a land shanty, right? (laughs) Like, it's something that you can just kind of sing as you go and as you work, like, as a group. It's not super complicated, but that's a very different mood, right? And that's why I want to hear it. I'm like, I want Tolkien to sit down and explain.
0: I actually was thinking I mean when when um when I read that poem and I remembered when it shows up in the Return of the King, I played that scene again in my head for myself and I I played it thinking about um about the fact that this is a song that Pippin sings to Denethor. Um, in the movie and, and in the background you're seeing, you know, like they're charging off to war and they're, they're certain doom and he's singing in about, you know, the sort of the futility of everything that's going on and everything that, that, um, that the kings of men are trying to do in, in resisting Sauron. Um, but then knowing that that's a, that that's actually a, a song that was never really intended to be sung, um. In that situation, right? Like, like you're saying, it's like a walking song. And actually, thinking about that made me so excited to watch the Return of the King because that's like it's it's a much deeper choice. It's just a much deeper scene when you think
1: about it that way. That's that was one of the things that I really enjoyed about this chapter. But the other thing I've got to say, like the other thing that I just really liked about this chapter was how much shade is in it. (laughs) Because, oh my gosh, like, there were some moments of sass and sarcasm. There's a point where he writes, like, Sam had on his head a lump, like a tall and shapeless thing of felt, which he called a hat. And I was just like, let Sam wear ugly hats, okay?
2: Yeah, there was was another,
1: like, shade moment
2: for Sam where... I guess like Frodo was moving out and Sam was described as saying goodbye to the beer barrel in the cellar. Oh my god. (laughs) Which is so good. Like I I enjoyed um it's almost like it again I don't know if it's just because I'm reading kind of with a microscope with an eye on this podcast now, but this book is like better than I remember it being. (laughs) There's more, you know, humorous moments and more whimsy and more like beautiful writing than I recall there being in these books.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think the humor is the thing that like, I probably if pressed would have assumed that there would be moments of sort of skillful language or prose that I was going to enjoy. I don't know that I would have sort of said, oh yeah, there are going to be things in these books that I find really funny and not just because I have a five-year-old sense of humor and laugh at the cracks of doom. <laughs> right? but there's like, there's other stuff that's, that's funny, and that's like maybe meant to be funny, right? Like when Frodo is sassing the elves. There's the elf says something like, "Oh, it's a you know an ancient saying, like you shouldn't rely too much on wizards or whatever." And Frodo's like, "Yeah." And it's also an ancient saying that you shouldn't ask elves for advice because they're crap at it. <laughs> I actually, I actually, uh, thought when
0: I hit that moment, I was like, this is a really terrible joke. I mean, I think these are all, I don't think any of these things count as shade. I think they're all, uh, I mean, they're whimsical, but that, did you guys laugh out loud at this stuff? That's unbelievable to me. Come on.
2: I definitely giggled at the beer barrel.
1: I mean, because it's cute, but it's not funny. I guess it depends on what you're defining as, humor though. Like, I don't think it's a joke in the sense of like, oh, I'm a comedian and I'm writing this (laughs) like as a joke, but it is humorous, right? Like it's meant to make people smile or laugh and sort of lighten the mood a little bit. And I think it does that.
0: Yeah. You get ready for a story that's going to be completely dark and where every plot point and every paragraph that you're reading is about is it has to advance the narrative in some way or like, or, or describe some, um, I guess you, you get ready for a, for a story where every sentence is a nod to the great struggle between good and evil, but you also get like a lot of, a lot of, uh, just lines that are, yeah, they're, they're just, they just make you feel good.
2: Yeah. And I mean, let's be real. Like we all, I think, remember the movies a lot better than we remember the books just probably by sheer number of times watched, but the movies don't have some of this stuff. Like they don't have that idea of relatability or of like just giving you a sense of a realistic timeline. Like you're watching a movie about a quest. You're not watching a movie about all of the background things that happen when you decide to go on a quest.
1: Well, and it's interesting. You sort of talk about the the background or the context, um, and even a little bit the pacing. Because something that's really different here is the way the Black writers are introduced. And I think we should talk about that for two reasons, right? One, we've all sort of brought up our maybe discomfort is a good word with the implicit bias that is associated with using the word black to describe evil things and using the word white to describe good and pure things. But I also think we can talk about it just as it's kind of a slow build, right? You know, part of that is that there are ominous music cues going on in the background. But I'm curious to know what you thought of that, or how did you like the way they were introduced here?
2: Yeah, let's definitely talk about the second thing first, because... The other one is a, a bit of a meaty topic. Yeah. Um, we'll get into that. We'll get into it. But yeah, I I don't know if I liked this actually. I felt like there weren't really stakes. And, and maybe it's more realistic in terms of the way present, like danger presents itself in the real world, where like you may not actually know through ominous music cues or like the lighting going dark or whatever it is that something dangerous is about to happen. And in that way, it's more realistic that this thing that you don't feel great about just took place, but you're not really sure why, and you don't understand what happened fully. But for the sake of a story... I, I felt like if I, again, if I didn't have any context, like I hadn't read these before or I hadn't watched the movies, I wouldn't have a sense of the danger that they're in here. Like, I would not feel like there are the high, the level of high stakes that there are in this moment. So I don't know if it's like successful as an introduction of a, of a really a kind of a main villain in the series.
0: What do you think Wanda? Well, wait, so Navia, so are are you saying that you didn't, you don't like the, you, you didn't like the way that the black riders were introduced because it didn't make you feel suspense or like it didn't make you feel scared? Yeah, I guess so. Like
2: this is, you know, we're about to interact with this villain of the series a lot and I, it didn't make me feel scared of them.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I don't know what to say about that. I guess I, I, uh, it's not that I, it's not that like the, you know, the hair on the back of my neck stood up or anything like that, but um, but it was definitely like you, 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 definitely got a sense that like something was like a little bit wrong when they show up. So like for context, um, so they, so they first encounter the black Riders when they're on the road. Um, and, and they hear, um, they hear someone kind of coming up like several hundred feet behind them. So you get like a long description of, of Frodo kind of running through the possibilities of who it could be. And trying to figure out, okay, what should we do? And then kind of the last minute he says, all right, everyone hide. But then everyone hides and then he doesn't hide because he has this sort of strange desire to not move and to see who it is that comes around the corner. You don't get a strong description of the black writers themselves, but you get a long description of how Frodo is feeling in response to them. And I felt like it was... It's interesting that you get more of that in the book and you get less of you get less of the actual like the book is not really telling you how to feel about these characters, but it's, it's actually telling you it's telling you something or giving you some idea of how they affect Frodo.
2: That's a good point. Wanda. Like, I think you're right in the sense that you do get an idea of what's happening to this character, but I think what's missing is like the effect on the reader where like, I don't know sometimes I like to when I'm reading a book like get really immersed in that world and feel things that the characters are feeling and and this uh, this decision felt like it took away from that a little I mean Ishani what did what did you think about it
1: I think I fell maybe more along the lines of Wanda's reaction for me what I really noticed was actually the first time we encounter the Black Riders is in the Shire um, yeah, uh, God, I over overhears that conversation. Yeah. Sorry, Wanda, sorry, but you're own, wrong. Own on um, a technicality. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, I got distracted, but my, I think what I liked was the, that for me, it's pretty clear from the beginning, even if I didn't know who the black writers are, I think the way it's written, it makes it pretty obvious that there's something not right. Um, from that first conversation. And then when they show up, and Wanda, you had pointed out in one of the notes you took on the chapter that the Black Riders might be sniffing for the ring, which is, of course, this kind of weird, creepy image. But, anyways, I digress, right? My point originally was that I like what I liked was not so much the build of tension where the characters are scared. I liked the build of tension from the characters not taking it seriously, and me as a reader sitting going, "This is bad. Like, why aren't you more freaked out by this? Um, because that to me, felt like where the narrative tension was coming from. that as a reader, I knew that these characters are walking into danger. And the fact that the characters themselves didn't know that created a lot of the anxiety and the tension that I think maybe was lacking, um, you know, from being in their shoes and feeling that danger myself. Uh, I I still got it just in a different way. Actually,
2: I, I'm kind of changing my mind about how I feel about this as we talk about it, because I think there's one major thing that it services, which is just the giving you the idea of how completely unprepared Frodo is for this whole experience. And that's another kind of big note that I had about this chapter is just like he doesn't know anything. He barely has found out what the ring is. Gandalf is like weirdly withholding of information. And also like he doesn't even give him a real destination. He's just kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Go somewhere, I guess. Towards danger, maybe? I don't know. But not too dangerous. Don't do that. Like, How is Gandalf expecting Frodo to just figure out what to do? Like Frodo has, like, le- literally never left the Shire. How is he supposed to know where to go? And and all of this makes it super apparent that he's not ready for this kind of task because he doesn't even know what to do when danger presents itself.
0: Yeah, and Frodo has basically, at this point, he has one tool to defend himself with, and it's the ring.
2: And he's been told not to use that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought it was really interesting that both Gandalf and then later... Um, Gildor, the elf, uh, who Frodo meets up with on the or the, all of the hobbits meet up with on the road, are like flat out, they're really vague, both of them. And at several points, they sort of flat out refuse to give Frodo more information that feels like it would be pretty important to have. Well, I think this is like, this is how all, let's see, I don't want to say quest,
0: but this is, this is sort of like how, how a typical trajectory in someone's life starts out, right? It's not with someone saying, okay, you have to go here. It's not like he's going to college. Um, It there's, they're all sort of, you get the sense that Gandalf and, and everybody else that knows more than Frodo does, is just sort of winging it right now. And they're, um, they understand that, that Frodo is the one that should be carrying the ring. um, But they don't necessarily know what the best place to to take it would be. And they're just, they're just kind of going step by step. Like you, you really get a sense that like from the beginning, nobody's got their act in gear. Um, Gandalf kind of realizes that, that the, uh, the realms of men are in big trouble. Um, and, and has like no time to figure out what the best thing to do would be. Um, basically like, like, Gandalf, by telling Frodo to leave, is just taking like an incremental step that he thinks is going to be a good idea. He has no idea what's what's going to happen later, or and he can't he can't see very far down the road. I actually found that to be like when you think about it, that that makes like a lot of sense, and that's uh, it, it's it's just more realistic and it's way less corny that way.
2: With Gandalf, it definitely feels a little bit more like he's being honest about how little he also knows. With Gildor. First of all, what a name, Gildor Inglorian. Come on, man. But <laughs> uh, it feels a little bit more like he is kind of on an ego trip withholding information where he's just like, ah, these, are, these things are for elves to know, not you, hobbits. Like that, that was more the vibe I got from him.
1: And on that note, we should talk about the elves. Because oh my <laughs> all of us had the same reaction of like... We meet the elves and immediately are like, wow, these guys are tools. <laughs>
2: yeah, the, the first thing they say is just like that hobbits are really dull or something. <laughs> and like...
1: Thinking back a couple of episodes to the prologue when we had talked about the sort of insular nature of the hobbits and the fact that they are a little xenophobic And then you meet the elves and it's kind of like, oh, okay, I don't really blame the hobbits for not liking them or for not trusting them. If this is what happens every time a hobbit meets an elf is that they're immediately insulted.
2: Yeah. And speaking of the xenophobia, actually, like Gildor says something specifically about that, which was a great quote. He says, the wild, the wide world is all about you. You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot ever fence it out. which is so, like, I mean, it's a very poignant quote just for anybody, but it is also kind of funny that Gildor says this because the elves absolutely do not let anybody into their world. Like, they also do exactly the same thing. I mean, they they basically just, like, laugh at Frodo when he tries to, like, relate to them by speaking high elvish. They're just like, yeah, cool man, whatever. <laughs>
1: I made a note that was the elves are absolutely those people who when they meet a person of color say something like, Wow, you speak English so well
2: Although in fairness I feel like what Frodo did was the equivalent of like somebody coming up to us and being like, Namaste <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. I, I mean I think it's I, I think no, I think both of them I think I think uh, hobbits and elves are actually closer to something that we don't really we're not really familiar with in our culture at all anymore, which is like nationalism and xenophobia as like a, as like a norm, right? Like, I mean, I think Tolkien wrote this at a time when, when it was just sort of assumed there was, there there was not really like, like racism was, was not a thing in the way that it's a thing now in the sense that it was just sort of assumed that you were not down with people from other countries. Well,
2: yeah. I mean, they were all at war too. So like his, his point of view is a little bit not not like justified but understandable in a way of like yeah everyone kind of did hate each other at that point in time
0: yeah the reception that the that the hobbits get with the elves um made me think about how it's not um it's not and shouldn't be thought of as a given um that that people from different i guess civilizations um or or nations are all kind of they all relate to each other as, um, members of a global village, right? Tolkien was writing this at a time when there was sort of implied hostility, um, between people in, in different countries, or at least like in different parts of the world. And it had to do with power, right? Like in, in Tolkien's time, it was probably colonial power. Um, and, and like the, and the economic power wielded by some European countries in America. And, um, and in this, in, in Middle Earth, It's, it's sort of the acknowledged hierarchy of civilizations that starts with the elves. Like I thought that it was like to pivot slightly, like (laughs) to talk about something kind of related. Um, I like rolled my eyes so hard at the part where like Frodo and Sam try the elves food and it's just like the best food. Like there's no other food that's as good. And it's just because it's elvish. It's just sort of implied that like elves, elves have nice things And it's not because of anything about their culture that we ever learn. It's just, it's just that they're better.
2: It's almost a little uncomfortable to like watch the elves be kind of like dismissive and patronizing and rude. And then the hobbits respond by just like being completely enamored by everything elvish. Like the whole time they're just like, this drink is amazing. This food is amazing. What beautiful people, what beautiful things. And, and you're just kind of like, dude, like have some dignity. (laughs) Like the Shire is pretty chill too, you know?
0: Yeah. It's, it, it doesn't seem like it's, it's presented critically at all. Uh, like Tolkien, I mean, and it's, it's the same in the movies too. Although in the movies, I don't, I don't think you really, I was, I never thought critically about this in the movies because, because the elf civilizations are so beautiful and they're so kind of otherworldly that you never really think, Oh, these are, these are beings that are, that are on a par or like have any kind of, um, like could, could even theoretically have equity with, um, with, with men and dwarves and hobbits. They're just, they're like gods or demigods. They even kind of
2: single Frodo out and they're like, Oh, like you're a hobbit. We like, which is like, that's gross. <laughs> that's like, a, You know? Oh, it's okay. Like I have a gay friend or whatever. <laughs> like, just,
0: right. Just I stop, have a dude. hobbit <laughs> friend. Like, yeah. well, it's because it's because he speaks elfish. I mean, it's, it's just, it's completely uncritical. Like, you know, we have, uh, we, we our default is to not like people from other races or civilizations, unless you make an effort first at showing that, you know, you think that our civilization is the best one. And then, you know, that's, that's kind of a friend thing. We're,
1: we're into you if you do that. Although I think what's interesting is that we're saying it's not presented critically, but I think it is more critically presented in the book because all of us had that same impression of well, the elves are like a little bit patronizing and they're kind of jerks. And like, they don't necessarily intend to be jerks, but they almost certainly intend to be patronizing. Um, And I don't know that that's as, uh, maybe I'm wrong, right? And I obviously can't speak to sort of authorial intention, but it does seem to me like in the books there is an element of the elves act this way and they aren't as perfect as they're sort of set out to be and and they are kind of rude and kind of dismissive and and maybe we shouldn't put them up on that pedestal that the hobbits do because the i mean the first thing we see is that they don't treat the hobbits all that well yeah that's an interesting
2: point it seems like it's hard to tell if if tolkien just is writing this from the perspective of like he has decided that the elves are better and so it's only like natural that they would also kind of consider themselves that way and be patronizing towards other people or if he's like trying to make a point here I feel like we need to talk about the, the big subject here because we've kind of right. delved into it.
1: <laughs> well, and the big subject that we are alluding to, dear listeners, is that we kind of have to talk about implicit and explicit bias when it comes to the Black Riders, because
2: yikes! I had this idea in my head of like, oh, like black writers, like we should talk about this trope in general. And then there's that line where Sam says, I think the gaffer said he was a black chap and you're just like, ah, <laughs> please don't do that. <laughs>
0: because it's not so much he was, uh, he was a man in a black cloak on a black horse
2: no. Yeah. It's very much like this is not a like capital B black writer. This is like he was a black dude. Like <laughs> that's basically the tone it's said with. Now, I, I think we all understand and know that like that's probably not what Tolkien meant here. He he meant like a, a dark writer in terms of the clothing and
1: the color of the horse and everything. Right. And like in terms of the mood and sort of the the vibe he gave off, but also seeing it written that way.
2: Yeah. Seeing it written that way kind of like pulls you out of the, of the context and just immediately puts you on this thought process of like, hold on. Like there is definitely a thing in a lot of fantasy about evil things being black and good things being white as explicitly as the Black Riders versus Gandalf the White, right? Like, is Tolkien the only one who's doing this? Or is is he, like, racist as a result? Or, you know, whatever? Probably not. I don't know. But it's certainly a trope that comes up in a lot of fantasy literature. But I think we have to talk about why, right? This is not something that's completely random and has nothing to do with racism at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, happens in this chapter where we talk about the black riders and then when the hobbits encounter the elves the way they encounter them is that the elves are singing and the elves are singing a song about Elbereth and they use the phrase snow white to describe this shining beacon um you know this sort of figure who is essentially godlike uh Multiple times they use that phrase, and so it's right there, right in this space of this single chapter. All of this implicit bias, and I think you're right. You know, like I don't know that we can sit here and go, Tolkien did this on purpose because he thought black people were evil. But that's how implicit bias gets perpetuated, right? Is that we we tell these stories, and and it doesn't have to be sort of written into the text oh black people are bad and white people are good but we read these things in stories and then we write them they become tropes right they Mm -hmm. they get written into other stories in similar ways and there is that association that gets formed as a result whether or not it's intended it happens Wanda, as our uh, Snow White member, <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> well,
0: well, I mean, I think it, it's um, you know, it's curious because it, it there's um, there's no doubt that you know, naming the Black Riders and as as uh, as dark figures and basically all of the characters from Mordor as being dark figures, whereas the the elves and their their, their legends are, they're all kind of white figures and there's Gandalf the white. I mean, that's, there's, there's no doubt that that is, um, that that's influenced by, by racism in, um, European folklore. And it's also, um, it also, just like Ashani was saying, it's, it's like a trope that gets kind of, you know, inscribed in fantasy in general, and that's passed on. But at the same time, the, the characters that are dark, um, at least so far they have, there's basically no nuance to the fact that they're evil, right? I mean, they're, they're just, they're sort of, I mean, they're, they're faceless antagonists in the case of the black writers. They're literally faceless antagonists. Their purpose in the story is to serve as, as a symbol of evil, right? Um, which makes it a, a different kind of racist, I guess I want to say than if, um, if the, if the evil characters of the antagonists in the story were literally black right or um or li- like literally had dark skin uh it would be it would strike me as worse and it, and more insidious if if the characters in the book were humans and had human personalities and characters um and uh but there was just sort of a hint that because they had dark skin um there was something about them that made them worthy of being um being the antagonists or, or if they were portrayed, I guess if, if the quote unquote black characters in the story were portrayed as like only ever slightly less human than the, than the whitest of the white characters, I would find that to be, I would find that to be even more insidious than what goes on here, which is just, um, it's so drastic. The, the, the black characters have no personalities at all. Um, and,
2: and also we have to keep in mind that like they are corrupted men. Right. So presumably at some point they they were white when they had yeah.
0: faces. Right. Right. Exactly. It's, it's the, um, it's, it's not so much. And no, I'm, I'm really glad you said it that way because the implication in, uh, of, of these characters dressing in black and, and being black for the most part is, is not so much that they come from a black civilization. It's that there is something black in this world, which is the basically the the devil, right? It's Sauron. Um, and it's his influence that has made, uh, his, his black writers and, and all of his other minions, um, into kind of black looking characters. If that makes sense. It's not, uh, it's racist, but it's, yeah.
1: Although, I mean, I think it's interesting, right? Like when you say there's something black in this world, right? Like that is like, why do we say that's what happens, right? Like that's the bias of why do we say there's something black in this world to mean there is something evil in this world, right? And that's the product of these kinds of tropes being present, right? So I agree with you. Like, I don't, I don't think that this is intentionally harmful. And I don't think that this is as insidious as other ways of being racist in text, right? Like, actually, I don't know that anybody's skin color has been explicitly described so far. But I think that's actually kind of the
2: problem. I mean, a lot of the complaints that currently come up about this series and also a lot of fantasy series in general is that there is an astonishing lack of diversity of the characters. And and the counterpoint to that is always like, oh, well, they're not actually described in what they look like, but, like, aren't they? Snow White seems like a pretty apt description of a white person to me. Like, I don't know. I guess I... We don't know that there are no Black people in this world, but we also definitely don't see any in any, like, representation that we see of of this series in... Um, in movies or in drawings or whatever it is, there's something that is that is interpreted as white, and I think if there was a diversity of characters and then you had these black writers that were just like they were wearing black clothes and all of this stuff, then sure, then we can look at it as like you know a representation of a lack of like light, maybe not necessarily a lack of whiteness, but. The fact that we're dealing with a world that like has all of these like mythical creatures and everything, and yet we never see like anybody who's like not a white person, and then you have the idea of these like black writers as the antithesis of that, it 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 doesn't it makes me uncomfortable. It's not insidious, and it's not Tolkien deliberately trying to be racist. He's just playing into a trope that already exists. But I I think that is kind of what makes me uncomfortable about about the trope in general.
1: Yeah, is that it's really easy to say like, "Oh, but he didn't mean anything by it," but it's there, right? And it does matter. And and I think we can't discount the fact that it does play a large part in furthering that bias and furthering that kind of language in yeah. other writing and even in speech. And so you can sort of, right, like separate out the the fact that maybe he didn't mean to have that particular intention, but it doesn't mean the impact is less harmful because it wasn't intentional.
2: Yeah. As we were talking about it, like I kept thinking about this thing that people always say that like that children aren't inherently racist when like when they're born and it's, you know, the environment that they grew up in and and the, the things they see from other people that kind of like plants racist ideas whether they're insidiously racist or unknowingly racist and and I feel like part of the issue is this idea of like children growing up with continuous stories of evil black things and and good white things and then it plants this idea in your mind that somehow like one of these things is superior to the other even if it's not as overt as like you think that about people when you hear people described as black and white, like I, I gotta wonder at some point what kind of connections have been subconsciously made in your mind.
0: I mean, like let's, let's, let's talk about this for a second though, because you know, if we're, if we're assuming that, um, that Tolkien is, is like reinscribing something that he learned, um, and, and was kind of passed down to him by, by the, by the folklore and the stereotypes that he grew up with in Britain, what is it exactly that he's passing down? Like, what is it that Tolkien has inherited that he's reinscribing in these books?
1: You mean, aside from the association between blackness and evil and whiteness and good? Or like, I mean, I'm trying, I'm not trying to be a smart ass about it. I'm genuinely like asking for some clarification on what your question is.
0: Yeah. I, I, I guess I'm, I, I think we, I think, I think it makes sense to try and be a little bit more specific because, um, there's, there's obviously, I mean, when I think about, um, when I think about the, the stereotypes that, um, that, uh, you know, a child in the night in the 1920s or thirties or, oh my goodness, Tolkien's way older than that. But however, whenever Tolkien grew up, (laughs) um, the, the stereotypes that, that, those people had about black people and black civilizations. Um, the stereotypes are a lot more complicated than just like, Oh, this, this is, um, black equals evil. Right. Um, I think about the idea of this, of the, I forget what it's called, but the, the hierarchy of civilizations, this idea, this like social Darwinist idea that, that some people, some civilizations are smarter and some are are dumber, um, with, with black people being, um, being the 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 most primitive and the dumbest right and and having having evil that flows from like a sort of like like a lack of a lack of evolved um evolved virtues and qualities
2: yeah i don't even know if evil is the right word there like i don't think i think it's like the idea of superiority didn't really have any root in thinking that something was evil and more just thinking that certain civilizations weren't worthy almost.
0: Yeah. And, 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 and so like, that's why I think it's interesting to, uh, like tease this apart a little bit because, um, I think that the, the, um, the racism that was present when Tolkien was growing up and was writing these books actually looks a lot more like that the, um, the attitudes that exist between different civilizations and races in Middle Earth, right? Between the hobbits and the men and the dwarves and the elves, then um than this sort of evil and good dichotomy. I don't I don't really think I mean and and it's not that I'm saying that there's nothing that's racial about the about all of the characters from Mordor being black. Of course there is. Um but but I I This, to be honest, like, even though I, even though I absolutely noticed the sort of racially coded language here, it didn't bother me very much. And I think, I think it's, um, I think it's worth noting that the reason that it didn't bother me is because it actually seems to have, it seems to have very little in common with, with, um, with negative tropes that actually existed back then and now about people with dark skin.
2: And, And I think if, if you want to give like a generous interpretation to why we have this idea of black as evil and white is good is not so much necessarily to do with black as a color and white of a color, but more to do with, like, the idea of darkness versus light. Um, because if you think of, like, Mordor as a place, right, it's a place where, like, the sun doesn't rise and it's always dark there. And, like, those things are associated with evil more than just, like, they are black Um, so I think there, there is that interpretation that is also fair. And, and I think I agree with you in the sense that like, I don't know necessarily that this representation came from a thing that was rooted in racism, but I still don't think that takes away the concern I have going forward about this trope being used and, and the damage that it could do to future
0: generations
1: and i would even say that it it was rooted in racism it just wasn't necessarily rooted in the sort of explicit racism that we see between for instance the elves and the dwarves or the elves and the hobbits like i think we see even today there are definitely different forms in which racism manifests and to say that you know the the sort of opinions held explicitly, right? And when I say opinions held explicitly, I mean, the conscious opinions that people in Tolkien's time might have had about people from other nations or other cultures or other races, right, might have looked more like what we see between the elves and the hobbits in this chapter. But there are also implicit biases, right? And there's implicit racism of holding the opinion that to be dark or to be black is to be evil right or is to be untrustworthy or is to be ominous or scary honestly like i think we could look at why are people of color and particularly black people seen as more threatening and look really sort of do a read of tolkien and say look it's right in there that what makes the black writers seem ominous is the fact that they're the black writers i don't i feel like that's like a little
2: bit of a literal interpretation though that i don't i I feel like we can give i mean you might be right but i I at least feel like we can give people a little bit more credit than associating like a literal color with like skin color but I, i i don't know
0: this is a complicated issue as we knew it was going to be. Ashwani, I think what you're getting at is that racism can manifest as explicit attitudes towards people of a certain background. And there's also this footprint um, that, that racist attitudes leave all over folklore um, such that we have, um, you know, I think a, a lot of like anti-Semitism looks this way, right? That there's, that there are, um, there are stereotypes about Jews that, um, that are not necessarily connected to anything about the relationship between Jewish and non-Jewish people today, but they still are pervasive throughout our culture, right? Like, like visual stereotypes about Jewish people, for instance, that I, I think I, I actually see, um, invoked very little, um, by, by, by anti-Semitic people, but that's still, I mean, they're, they're, there. they sort of have a life of their own. And it's ironic that that um that tolkien is is using the Lord of the Rings to explicitly talk about um xenophobia and and um and racial hierarchies and racial conflicts, but is also reinscribing some of these older um racial tropes into the story themselves
2: yeah, I think that's a really good way that's a really good lens to see this through Wanda. like. I, I was having trouble articulating it, but yes, there are clearly things that come from our literature and our folklore that, or that originate from being targeted towards a group of people, and whether or not we consciously understand those tropes,
0: they're still there. And it doesn't mean that they're not racist.
2: Yeah, they're they're probably definitely racist. <laughs> <laughs> But also, you know, I think when we talk about this, like, a thing that we've been doing constantly in this conversation is kind of exempting Tolkien from the label of having been racist, right? He's a person who might have used racist tropes unknowingly. He's a person who clearly talked about race in these books, but we're kind of, like, giving him the benefit of the doubt of that, like, okay, well, he also may not have been racist himself.
1: And I don't even know that I'm... I would say that, right? Like, I don't... What I might say is Tolkien didn't... At least not yet. Like, has not written explicit... Sort of... His own explicit racism into the books. But I think you can say, like, he has written his own implicit bias into the books. Right? And... Yeah. Like, I... I wouldn't excuse him from holding that bias and I wouldn't excuse him again, you know, like even if it's not intentional, it's like, yeah, you're still, you're still biased, right? Even if you don't recognize it.
2: Sure. It's not that I'm excusing his bias necessarily as to say, I don't think we can separate him from the time he lived in. And, you know, I think our understanding of racism has changed a lot recently, right? We, we now... Have gone from an idea of racism as like a conscious thinking of a a conscious acknowledgement of superiority or like thinking that another race is inferior or hating another race to this idea of, well, actually, racism is a little bit more complicated and you don't necessarily know that you're racist. And all of these things of explicit versus implicit bias play into that. And I think that like we can look at Tolkien's writing and say, yes, he probably held some implicitly racist ideas. But I, d- I don't think you can like look at it in a vacuum without acknowledging like what was the norm of thinking at the time.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I also, you know, this is not the time or the place to get into the, so was Tolkien racist question? Because I think that's a much more complicated <laughs> question. And you're right that context plays a part and sort of intentionality plays a part in how we maybe ascribe or don't ascribe that label, right? Like I think we could say everybody is going to engage in racist behaviors sometimes because we have all grown up in society and carry some of those implicit biases with us, right? And how do we sort of Again, like that anti-racism thing. And now I'm getting off track, right? But like, I I don't know that it's yeah. even a really useful question to say, like, was Tolkien a racist? You know, maybe we just yeah. kind of have to leave it at it is complicated and it is nuanced. And it's you know, sort of the benefit of going back to these things as people, hopefully a little more capable of critical thought than we were as middle schoolers. <laughs> I mean, I do think it says something,
2: right, that like this is something that none of us have ever really talked about with each other about this series before. And then like while reading it right now, when race is at the forefront of all of our conversations as a society, we all suddenly picked up on it. Like. We've watched these movies plenty of times. We've read these books like we knew the black writers existed and we knew what they were called But something about looking at it through the lens of, I think, a lot of introspection that people are doing right now about their own implicit biases that they may hold made us all pick up on this particular topic and be like, wait a minute. And that's probably a good thing that we're doing that.
0: Well, and on that note, that's all for today. Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Ashani. You can find us on Twitter at O D N S pod and Tumblr at one does not simply pod special thanks to Andrew consistently for doing the music for this podcast, uh, for Nishant for providing some feedback and helping us see where we could be, uh, we could be better and better serve our listeners, uh, Sneha for helping us figure out how the heck to promote this thing and, uh, to all our listeners for joining us on this journey. Thanks.